Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is great to be back on the air with you guys. I hope all of you have been doing well since I was on the air last, and I have no doubts that all of, all of you have. You know, uh, a lot has been going on since I was on the air last, but it's all been for the good. Um, my wife and I yesterday um, took a day trip to Colonial Williamsburg, one of our favorite places to visit. As I've said many of times before, and I'll say here again, uh, once again, we came away learning um, some new information that we didn't know before. And that's always a good thing because even those who work at Colonial Williamsburg are constantly learning something new themselves about the past that they can share in the present. And uh, with that information they share in the present, their um, objectives is to make sure that it um, benefits uh, future generations, not only of uh, visitors who come to Colonial Williamsburg, regardless of where they may live in the United States or elsewhere around the world, but as a means of um, you know, better educating the greater public about uh, a unique um, establishment right in uh, Virginia. But, you know, Colonial Colonial Williamsburg is more, I mean, yes, Colonial Williamsburg is a very unique um, establishment in terms of its overall history, but I think it's fair to say that there are uh, many places in the United States that have um, unique establishments that bear resemblance to Williamsburg. Uh, I know uh, where my wife and I uh, vacationed uh, this summer in uh, northwest Ohio, right outside of Toledo, there was a Souder village uh, named after Erie Souder that was established in 1976 as a means of uh, better educating uh, the people of Ohio per, in terms of uh, Ohio's history before and after um the Ohio Territory, and what we know now as the state of Ohio, became um, admitted into the Union in 1803. Uh, so for those of you who are looking for something that um, bears any kind of a close significance to uh, Colonial Williamsburg, I strongly recommend uh, visiting uh, historic Souder Village in Archbold, Ohio, um, that uh, basically tells Ohio's history from, the, uh, from its uh, pre-statehood days up until uh, the 1920s. So uh, one thing that um, did strike out uh, a couple of days ago was uh, from uh, Friday, November the 10th. That date marked the 48th anniversary of the sinking of the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald, or as some would call the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I still find it hard to believe that that was the last known um, shipwreck on the Great Lakes to this day. It was 48 years ago. And we certainly hope that uh, that um, no other shipwrecks do happen, but of course we also have to be reminded that no matter how sophisticated our technology is, no matter how strong the technology is, you know, nature does still have a way of prevailing. You know, we can do everything there is to modify. We can certainly learn from past mistakes, but no matter how good of a job we do at modifying from our uh, past mistakes, Mother Nature still has the upper hand. I did read um, from this past Friday online that uh, one um, historian, one historian came up with a very unique uh, theory that uh, he personally believed that the 
that while, yes, it could be possible that the Fitzgerald might have hit a shoal in terms of running aground, that hitting the shoal alone would not have been enough to have uh, caused it to ultimately split in part, split in two. He personally believed that um, that that um, that the Fitzgerald, uh, given that she endured um, multiple storms, not just on the night of November 10th of 1975, but the wear and tear of the of the ship, in terms of what she endured per uh, storms that she encountered could have ultimately had a uh, profound impact on the uh, stability of the hull. And therefore, uh, on November 10th of 1975, the waves that she was encountering, being three-story waves, probably about 30 feet in height, those waves, given, at the, uh, given the intensity they were coming at, and given that the hull was probably already weakened by previous wear and tear from waves, from uh, past excursions out on the water, that what happened on the 10th of November may have been the final straw that broke the camel's back. And had she, and if she did hit a shoal, that probably played a, definitely played a factor, but it may not have been the ultimate factor as to why the ship split. But hey, everybody's got their own uh, theories, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, one thing I do have to keep in mind, and this is something that I, that I have mentioned before, uh, from a from various uh, book topic series podcasts, uh, the late uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who is a senator from New York, United States Senator, that is, he came up with a very good point. He said this years ago, and he said the following, everyone's entitled to their own opinion on a subject. No matter how sensitive it is, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. So in other words, yes, you can be entitled to whatever opinion you would like to have as to what you, um, regardless of a subject, but you just can't be entitled to your own facts. And uh, not to get political or anything, but in today's time with um, with all kinds of, um, with multiple forms of, um, of uh, techno- technological means and obtaining the news, and what we see on television, multiple news media outlets where people, where uh, reporters seem to want to engage more via entertaining rather than reporting the story uh, properly, that's where we see a lot of people um, go about with this notion of being entitled to their own facts versus um, their own um versus reporting the news properly. But again, I'm not trying to get into anything political, but uh, I do think we should all be reminded of the fact that, um, I have to be reminded of the fact that when my parents were growing up, you only had three television stations, and you had three people, you know, three people were reporting the news in terms of the national news. You had uh, Walter Cronkite with CBS, um, David Brinkley with ABC News, and then Chet Huntley with NBC News. So, uh, you didn't have any such thing as uh, headline news. Um, you know, yes, you may have had your local news station, but you had three major um, television news stations with their um, with their lead anchormen uh, reporting the news straight and reporting it like it was supposed to have. And no, and I take Walter Cronkite for example. I can understand why for many years he was um, viewed as. Um, not only is the leading anchor man, but America's most trusted uh, news reporter of his time. 
Well, I think it's time to uh, get the show on the road as to where we need to be um, focusing on with regards to our uh, podcast uh, book topic series discussion of Michael Schumacher's Torn in Two, The Sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell and One Man's Survival on the Open Sea. This is uh, part two of two behind the uh, public um, autopsy being that of the Coast Guard hearings. In this episode, we will uh, learn uh, whether or not Dennis Hale gets transferred from one hospital to another. We will also learn that we will also learn if, in fact, uh, news reporters meet with Dennis Hale in the hospital. But then again, news reporters have already met with him in the hospital, but yet they want to meet with him again. We'll also have to find out if, in fact, um, the Coast Guard's involved in this, that is, the Board of Inquiry. We will also, um, we will also uh, go behind the scenes and learn about what kind of uh, recommendations uh, the Coast Guard Board of Inquiry um, chooses to implement in the aftermath of this uh, sinking. After all, it is fair to say that whenever something does happen, like this one, and given that there have been three shipwrecks, three major shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, less than a, less than a decade, less than a 10-year span. We've seen three, one being the uh, Carl Bradley from 1958, the second being the Cedarville, 1965, and now this one in 1966, November of 66, the Daniel J. Morrell. Three shipwrecks, folks, in an eight-year span. That's got to make the... Uh, not only people along the Great Lakes very concerned about, you know, what's going on here and why are these older freighters, older um, freighter vessels, why are they allowed to be out on the water still when, um, when they should be flat out replaced? That's something that we will be talking about here. So I think it's best to say that we better get this show on the road before it's too late. So here we go with our first leadoff question for this uh, podcast segment episode. Did Dennis Hale get transferred from the hospital in Harbor Beach, Michigan to another hospital facility? Uh, the answer is yes, he did. Why did he get transferred? Well, his current physical condition was one that simply required greater medical attention. So, it could be fair to say that where he's currently at in Harbor Beach, Michigan, they may only be able to do but so much. They could stabilize him, which they've already done, but it could be that they that the hospital facility in Harbor Beach, Michigan, simply does not have enough resources on them in terms of uh, going past the 101 um, procedure protocol and so, therefore, they know that um, it would be best for him, based upon his condition, based upon what he is currently dealing with, to be um, transferred to another facility that can provide him with more um, care than what uh, the location in um, Harbor Beach, Michigan, was able to do. And sometimes that happens, folks. I mean, we all have to be reminded that um, not, not every hospital is equipped with... Um, with the same kind of equipment or the same kind of, um, uh, with the same kind of, uh, how do I say it? Some hospitals may provide just the 101 means of, um, you know, stabilizing someone, 
but yet they can only do but so much, and therefore it's it's best that that depending upon the uh, severity of the uh, condition that the individual's in, that that individual needs to be transported as quickly as as possible to a higher um, level of hospital where they can get the uh, proper care that they need. So, therefore, a final decision was made which enabled Dennis Hale to be transferred back home and where's back home, folks? In Ashtabula, Ohio. So he is going to be transferred, folks, from Harbor Beach, Michigan, all the way back south to Ashtabula, Ohio. And there is a hospital there uh, called Ashtabula General Hospital. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, why didn't they just send the guy, you know, maybe down to Detroit, uh, which is, say, you know, which has a higher population than, say, Harbor Beach? You know, I honestly don't know why they didn't do that, but at the same time, Dennis Hale, you know, he wants to be back home. He knows that he can't be, you know, physically back in his own house, but he wants to be back home um, in his community. I don't blame the guy, but I I also think it's great that the um, hospital um, staff and personnel I'm glad that they were able to do whatever they could for him, given that given the ordeal that he has faced uh, or that he underwent, that they were able to stabilize him to the best of their abilities. Now, his transfer back home to Ohio was done by ambulance. And I uh, checked the um, I did a mileage check on this through Google Maps the other day. From uh, Harbor Beach, Michigan, which is just north of uh, Flint, to Ashtabula, Ohio, that's 347 miles, just shy of six hours. So think about it, folks. Dennis Hale, his transfer uh, back home via ambulance the whole way from Harbor Beach, Michigan, to Ashtabula, Ohio, was just shy of six hours. He had not um, been outside since the day he got rescued. On one hand, you know, maybe taking your first steps outside since the day you were rescued, that is a, a, a unique first step in the right direction. But yet, at the same time, there still is an uphill um, there still is an uphill battle he's facing, and that is trying to get back to 100% um, quality uh, shape per the state he would have been in prior to this unforeseen um, incident occurring. As the Ramsey Funeral Home Ambulance journeyed southward to Ohio, Dennis Hale learned firsthand how major the news itself behind his survival had spread. For one, cars pulled nearby the ambulance Hale was in, only for drivers to honk the horns and wave. Now, I'm thinking to myself here, okay, yes, a lot of people do know about this one man having survived out of 29 crewmen on board the SS Daniel J. Morrell. But I'm also thinking to myself, why would... um, news reporters have wanted to make an announcement over the radio that that Ramsey Funeral Home Ambulance would be transporting the survivor. 
Well, I'm led to wonder that perhaps when this all was taking place that there was no such thing as privacy laws. Of course, even in 1966, you didn't have the same kind of access outlet to news. I mean, yes, you had a newspaper. Yes, you had the radio. Yes, you had you had three stations on television that could re- report the news. But yet at the same time, when you heard um, if this was reported over the radio, which it was, that was breaking news. And it was instant news. And I don't see why in the world it ever would have come into question as to reveal whom was uh, transporting uh, Dennis Hale back to uh, Ashtabula, Ohio, in terms of um, in terms of the um, funeral home um, funeral home uh, the name of the funeral home per the ambulance that was uh, transporting Mr. Hale back. So so now Dennis Hale sees. Not only does he see cars pulling, um, going by, but people are waving. Well, you know, for Dennis Hale, I have mixed emotions. If I was in his shoes, I would have mixed emotions, I should say. For one, um, Dennis Hale is very thankful, obviously, to be alive. I mean, I would be very thankful myself if this was me but yet um but given the circumstances that are taking place it just seems like everybody including the news reporters wanted to know about Hale's survival story it seems as though the public is looking for instant gratification they want to hear a wonderful story of survival so that they all can feel a little bit better but yet the thing is, is that Dennis Hale, Dennis Hale wants the American people to know that while, yes, I appreciate your all's um, feedback, I appreciate your all's kind words about the fact that I survived, I will take that any day, but I have mixed feelings about all this. For one, yes, I'm thankful to be alive, given that the odds of survival were incredibly slim. But at the same time, if I'm Dennis Hale, my survival, for one, it can't be taken for granted. But two, my survival is going to have to always, it's, it's never going to be able to go away knowing that, um, knowing that all the other crewmen on board the SS Daniel J. Morell did not get the chance to uh, survive, including three men on the life raft that I, sh- that I shared with whom I went above and beyond in trying to uh, keep their spirits up, do everything there was to keep them alive, even under the most uh, intense of uh, weather circumstances, and knowing that everything I had done, I still wasn't able to save my three fellow comrades on that life raft. So yes, here I can be thankful all I want to be alive, but it doesn't, but deep down it might not really mean 100% positivity because nobody else lived. How do I go on with my life knowing that the rest of my uh, crewmates were not spared? From the time Hale was first rescued, including the lead-up to uh, Christmas Day, he still had not made a full 100% recovery. 
but yet his progress came in phases. He was still having trouble, folks, with walking. He had continual pain in his legs and feet, which led to great discomfort. You know, it's so easy for us to walk around, talk, move our arms, move our legs, you know, get around from point A to point B, but yet when we've but yet when we learn about something as horrific as this, knowing that one man survived out of, you know, twenty nine and knowing that he's still having trouble with walking and that there's an incredible amount of uh, pain in both his legs and feet that are leading to a, a great uh, deal of discomfort. The pain still, the pain has never gone away. I mean, it over time it will probably get reduced by 50%, but it may not ever lead to a full 100% recovery. It is possible. It's just going to take a lot longer. Did the, did the Coast Guard uh, board, including attorneys representing Bethlehem Steel and the victims' families, along with media reporters, all travel to Ashtabula, Ohio, despite Dennis Hale himself still under hospitalization? Believe it or not, folks, the answer is yes. So, okay, we have, it, it, it's one thing to have the Coast Guard Board of Inquiry there, now all of a sudden you've got attorneys rep that represent Bethlehem Steel, including the victims' families, along with um, a handful of media reporters, all making their way into Ashtabula, Ohio. Do you think this might be the last thing Dennis Hale wants? I would think so, but at the same time, Dennis Hale knows that, you know, he, I mean, yes, he's spoken to some reporters. He's spoken to, um, uh, to someone from Bethlehem Steel. Uh, he he has spoken with with some um, top level people, but yet to have this whole barrage come at him right now, it is a lot. And of all places in the hospital, but there is good news to report in that uh, the medical staff did go as far as transporting Dennis Hale's hospital bed into a conference room on the fifth floor where Hale himself could answer questions to all those in attendance. Well, I'm glad that the hospital staff did what was uh, necessary to assist Dennis Hale. After all, they knew that they could not keep him, um, they couldn't shelter him. Uh, they knew that this was a, um, with the Coast Guard and all that, um, that it is a federal matter. I mean, Dennis Hale's not a criminal, folks. But the bottom line is that uh, the Coast Guard needs to, um, they have to do an investigation. I mean, they have to um, present their findings, but they need to do it in a timely manner. So, yes, Dennis Hale, folks, uh, provided a testimony that lasted around one and a half days. I'm sure some of you are wondering exactly what kind of questions might have been thrown at Dennis Hale. All right, I can give this to you all. Questions that were asked, or I should say addressed to Dennis Hale, revolved around how and why the SS Morel broke apart to finding, or I should say gathering evidence of where the Morel's wreckage could be spotted or traced. All right, so those are some tough questions. As for Dennis Hale, 
His recollections revolved around just how long his wrath of suffering lasted. But he also had said the following about the overall state of uh, the Morel's health. And this was in uh, quotations, folks. Leaked like a sieve. Does anybody know what a sieve is? It's spelled S-I-E-V-E. A sieve is what's called a uh, mesh strainer. A sieve uh, separates wanted elements from unwanted material. In this particular um, scenario, per the comment that Dennis Hale made with regards to the vessel's health leaked like a sieve, Dennis Hale was uh, very convinced that, um, that hundreds of rivets were in a... Uh, not so good state of shape. In other words, hundreds of rivets were in um, in, a, in a bad state of deterioration. Hale was convinced that nearly 25% of the Morel's rivets were in awful shape, primarily within the ship's hold compartment. Hold compartment being where the, where the cargo was stored. Not is not so much where the cargo is stored, but where the cargo would have been unloaded, and would have been um, sent down into uh, the chute, where it would have been uh, protected by the hatch covers. So, what was now becoming a primary focus per the hearings uh, conducted at Ashtabula General Hospital? The primary focus per the hearings uh, conducted pertained to the overall structural integrity regarding older-aged vessels, given many of them were still navigating Great Lakes waters. So yes, it would be easy to think that, well, it's just the SS Daniel J. Morell and her twin sister, the SS Edward Y. Townsend, that are really the only two ships on the Great Lakes whom are of real old-age status. That's not the case, folks. Um, I don't know exactly how many uh, ships um, were, say, close to 60 years of age in 1966. I do know that when uh, the SS Carl D. Bradley sank in 1958, she was built in 1927. But, you know, she was only 31 years old when she sank. But we have to keep in mind that, um, that the steel that was used to build the Bradley given that she was built in 1927, the steel that was uh, used was not of the uh, best quality. It was more of a, a lower grade quality of steel that uh, you know became brittle to the point that when the Bradley split apart, um, her sinking had a lot of, obviously had lots of similarities to the Morels in terms of the quality of steel and how over time and old age that steel itself, when you're dealing with um, unsuitable weather conditions, steel itself will um, will play tricks on you that where you may not um, expect it to happen, but the steel will ultimately give out due to excessive stress from a host of factors such as uh, loading uh, more cargo into the vessel than what the uh, vessel itself was originally intended to hold. It's just one of many examples. But yes, the biggest uh, concern now is the overall structural integrity regarding these older-aged vessels, given that a good number of them are still navigating Great Lakes waters. 
One question pertained to how aging vessels could still be considered safe while in the midst of enduring severe beatings along cold and stormy waters. Another question arose to where perhaps shipping companies themselves ought to retire their older freighters, those built before 1948, when new steel first introduced at the start of the 20th century, to simply retaining the older vessels at bay or at dock once bad weather got officially forecasted. Well, here's the thing. You could certainly hold back all of the older freighter vessels and keep them at the dock knowing that inclement weather has the potential to make its way out onto the uh, Great Lakes waters. But who's not to say that a newer freighter with the most up-to-date uh, quality of steel, that is 1948 and onward, who's not to say that, the, that a newer freighter vessel might encounter not only a bad storm, but who's to say that the newer vessel could experience... Um, a host of problems such as um, damaged rivets to perhaps a um, major uh, crack line along the uh, along the, the deck of the vessel like what the Edward Y. Townsend uh, saw right as she was um, refueling per her captain. So the bottom line is that you know no matter how old or young a vessel is you know vessels aren't immune from uh, from the uh, wrath of of Mother Nature, but it is fair to say that that it might not have been a bad idea to uh, keep the older vessels at dock or at bay when uh, inclement bad inclement weather was known to be uh, foreseeable. But of course, I think it'd probably be fair to say that even the company officials of some of these companies, like say Bethlehem Steel, they probably could have come back and said, "Well, if we leave all of our older vessels out on the dock." you know, we might, we're losing money. We're wasting money. You know, we need to have these guys out there doing the same thing as the, um, the new guys. That's just, that's my take on it. Uh, what became the uh, primary objective for the Coast Guard just after January 1st of 1967? How about finding the wreckage of the SS Daniel J. Morrell? Admiral Willard Smith, went about uh, reaching out to Ocean Systems Incorporated, located in Alexandria, Virginia. Ocean Systems Incorporated, folks, just so happened to, at the time, happened to be run by a fellow named John Lindbergh, who was the son of famous United States aviator Charles Lindbergh. So uh, John Lindbergh would go about, along with Admiral Willard Smith, they would each go about assisting in the finding to the surveying of the Morell's wreckage. So, in 1967, what kind of technology do we have, folks, that can help make this all possible? Well, the search for the Morell is going to involve the use of a Navy plane, which is going to get equipped with magnetic detection equipment. The Navy plane uh, would fly over an area where the Morell supposedly went down, and once a large object was found, ocean systems would come to the direct location by using a remote control camera that got lowered down to the wreckage spot. The Bramble, uh, being a Coast Guard cutter that had um, 
participated heavily with the search and rescue um, operation in the midst of trying to locate wreckage as well as Mor other Morell survivors would be serving as the uh, survey vessel. Of course, when I uh, think of um, remote um, vehicles, the first one I learned about was when um, right after Dr. Ballard, Dr. Robert Ballard, that is, when he and his team had discovered um, the wreck of the Titanic, uh, they had first come upon uh, boilers, some of her boilers, at the depths of the uh, North Atlantic Ocean. But um, they, um, I think it was in 1986 it was, yes, they uh, went about using what were called ROVs, remote-operated vehicles that they sent down um, two and a half miles down to the depths of the North Atlantic Ocean, and the ROVs were able to um, go about um, providing Ballard and his team with um, with all kinds of um, evidence and get and helping them get a better understanding of whether or not you know the Titanic did split in two, which she ultimately did. So it is fair to say that even in 1967, our technology is very unique for its time and that, you know, we do have what are called remote control cameras that can uh, go about, um, that, that can go about uh, trying to detect uh, where the wreckage of a ship actually uh, lies. So the next step is going to require, um, well, actually, I take it back um, before I get to that part here. <laughs> The Navy plane, um, once this uh, all began, uh, the Navy plane did, in fact, confirm a finding shortly after the search began. Just over um, an object, or I should say, an object or item in the water was spotted just over four miles from the Bramble's position. January 6th of 1967, 38 days after the SS Daniel J. Morrell sunk, that would have been five weeks and uh, three days, the Coast Guard cutter Bramble entered into position to where Ocean Systems team successfully lowered the remote control camera below Lake Huron surface. The TV monitor picked up the Morrell's stern section did you hear that, folks? The TV monitor picked up Morell's stern section, and when the remote control camera ran from left to right, the boat's wording was identified, confirmed, as none other than SS Daniel J. Morell. There's the smoking gun, folks. That's the um, that's the evidence that um that was needed so had it not been for the use of this um, remote control camera you know all we could do is speculate and, and say hey we think it may have happened here or there in terms of the sinking but we have taken a big step in the right direction with a remote control camera that has not only uh picked up where the morels um stern section um, was located, but also that of the boat's wording, being S.S. Daniel J. Morell. The next step required sending divers down for up-close wreckage inspection. Ocean Systems crew people turned Bramble's deck into a raised structure for diving purposes. 
Believe it or not, folks, the Morel stern was positioned in 216 feet of water. 216 feet of water. That's a lot of water. So if you're part of this uh, diver or diving excursion, what do you need to bring up? You need to bring up uh, metal samples from the Morel's hole. Why bring up metal samples? Because we want to know just how weak the Morel's hole was leading up to the sinking. We, we need to know what, what, what is it going to take to reduce the chances or re, yeah, reduce the risks of, um, of these kinds of incidents from happening. But we will find out here soon as to, um, as to what other um, confirmations come about as a result of, um, of bringing up uh, metal samples from the Morel's hole. What could divers and researchers make out per up-close views of Morel's wreckage? For one, they had determined that the stern, or I should say the back section, had plunged straight forward first to Lake Huron's bottom depths. You know, we all have to be reminded of the fact that when a ship sinks, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, the ship just sank in one and landed very hard intact all the, to the uh, very bottom um, of either the ocean floor or a lake's floor or that of a great lake's floor. You know, for years we were all convinced that the Titanic, for example, had sunk in one piece. Uh, and the only reason I know this is because I remember seeing, watching a documentary. Uh, I've watched a handful of documentaries about the uh, sinking of the Titanic but there was one clip I saw, it was from, um, I want to say the movie came out in 1955 or 1958. It was um, Walter Lord's, it was based off of Walter Lord's book, A Night to Remember. And it showed the Titanic rising into the air. And then it, it showed her sinking. But yet the way she sunk, it was like a peaceful sinking. But we all know that was not true. Of course, we all learned that um, most notably when, uh, per Dr. Ballard's uh, discovery findings, that the ship did split in two and that it was a very, very violent, um, violent sinking, to say the least. But here again, even on the Great Lakes, we have to remember that not all ships sink being intact. Uh, it, I think historians know that since 1679, there have been at least 6,000 shipwrecks. It might be fair to say that there have been some uh, shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, or a handful of them, where perhaps uh, smaller vessels sank intact. But it's also fair to say that many of vessels, probably by the time they became uh, what we know as straight deckers, 600 feet long, and like in the case with the Edmund Fitzgerald being 729 feet long, the Fitzgerald split in two. The Carl Bradley did the same too, as well. Um, Daniel J. Morell did. I, I could go on and on, but I think it's fair to say that these um, large freighter vessels, the straight deckers that are 600 feet long, or starting out in the beginning of the 20th century as 600 feet as 600 feet long, and then um, by the time the Fitzgerald was built in 57 or 58. 
when she was built, uh, she became the the biggest uh, freighter on the Great Lakes, and she was, um, she even got known as the Titanic of the Great Lakes. But uh, but we do have to be reminded of the fact that yes, when a ship sinks, uh, ships don't always sink intact. So yes, for um, the stern section, yes, to have plunged straight forward first. It must have been a very, very rapid descent all the way down to the bottom depth. And it must have, you know, because historians know even with the Titanic, when um, when she split in two, it was a very violent uh, descent down to the depths of the North Atlantic Ocean. So I can only imagine what that must have been like for um, the SS Daniel J. Morrell per her... Um, descent uh per her rapid descent down into the depths of lake huron uh secondly um divers and researchers confirmed that the wreckage got buried in mud nearly up to six feet of her deck so yes it's one thing when the ship hits hits the depths of the surface at the very bottom but other things soon lead up or follow afterwards, mud, um, sand, I mean, all kinds of um, elements. It just doesn't sit there peacefully, but it. Um, but other um, factors uh, in terms of nature take their course. The morel per Dennis Hale's recollection split, broke apart around the 11th and 12th hatches. And we have to remember with these uh, straight uh, with these straight deckers, uh, large bulk freight carriers, or bulk freighter vessels, I should say, that they probably have at best 18 hatch covers. Remember, with the vessels that were built prior to the start of the 20th century, the pilot house was in the middle. You had a set of hatch covers in the front, and you, then you had a set in the back. That all changes because company officials want more space. For, uh, for cargo hatches, they want more cargo hatches, but they want them all in the center. So, for Dennis Hale to be able to um, remember where, per his recollections, where the vessel split or broke apart, being around the 11th and 12th uh, hatches, that's pretty remarkable considering what he's been through. Divers and researchers confirm this per TV monitor's findings connected to the Coast Guard cutter Bramble. So yes, it's one thing for Dennis Hale to say, well, I'm very convinced that the um, that the uh, vessel split around the 11th and 12th hatches. All right, we'll take your word for it, but we also need some other proof. So we need to have, we need to also rely on the technology that's available at the time. So the TV monitor did confirm that Hale's findings were right and that the uh, split or the uh, Morel's breaking apart happened around the 11th and 12th hatches. The TV monitor um, gained, obtained um, a handful of uh, powerful evidence. The, the TV monitor uh, saw firsthand the twisting and tearing of the steel at the exact moment when the Morel came apart. It proved to be significant given the steel itself could be seen or viewed to be torn, folded, crooked, 
Cargo hatches are scattered all over Huron's floor depths, whereas the covered starboard lifeboat remained intact, hanging over the Morel's side. You would think with as powerful of a storm that was that the lifeboat would have just been um, taken apart and flung overboard and maybe and obviously never to be seen again. But it turns out, folks, that that lifeboat still remained intact, hanging over the Morel's side. Well, we also have to remember, too, folks, that that the uh, life, but that the uh, two lifeboats on the stern section were never lowered or physically launched. They still remained intact. Uh, they still remained intact per their davits. But obviously, the waves did have uh, enough of an impact to um, to knock this starboard lifeboat where where the lifeboat did hang over the Morel side. But uh, I think it's also fair to say that had uh, crewmen attempted to go all out and launch the two lifeboats, that um, that the lifeboats probably would have met a different story where they may have been lost altogether. That's just my uh, take on it. The port lifeboat was not even located nor were missing crewmen spotted, along with not finding the Morel's bow section. What I found probably the most powerful here, in terms of what um, this TV monitor uh, picked up on, the TV monitor spotted a uh, clock. A clock was detected along the stern, and it listed the time of 3.28 a.m. of November 29th. It was very likely around this time that, per Dennis Hale's story accounts, that the Daniel, that the SS Daniel J. Morrell stern remained afloat above surface for almost one and a half hours after the bow had sunk. Divers continued visiting the Morrell wreck site daily until February 2nd of 1967 when weather conditions proved to be difficult for further exploration. So think about it, folks. If they had, starting around uh, January um, 6th, I want to say it was, that means that they had probably about, at best, um, not even a full four weeks but they had just shy of um, they had just shy of four weeks. Let's put it that way. They got a lot done, given the uh, circumstances they were in. What came about on March twenty fourth, nineteen sixty seven? The Coast Guard board issued its final official report behind what caused the SS Daniel J. Morrell to sink. The Coast Guard Board of Inquiry confirmed that metal fatigue and brittle being loose steel, both contributed to ships sinking given how cold air itself played out along with frigid water temperatures. I had mentioned to you all earlier about how steel samples were going to need to be recovered. Well, the steel samples recovered from the wreck site confirmed that the steel that was used on the SS Daniel J. Morrell, in fact, was extremely weak. Steel used before 1948 that uh, played a um, significant contributing factor 
behind uh, what ultimately led to the ship sinking. But of course, I think it's also fair to say that while yes, the quality of steel did have a um, an incredible um, contribution behind why the ship sank, I think it's also fair to say that it could not be the ultimate reason. You know, yes, we could say X, Y, and Z are the primary three factors why this event or or really behind why this incident took place, but is it fair to say you should put all of your eggs into the into one basket per three factors? Perhaps not. So the Coast Guard also has to take in to uh, take in other considerations in terms of findings. So what other findings did the Coast Guard board inquiry recommend? They recommended that all older vessels holes undergo more rigorous inspections. So could it be fair to say that prior to the SS Daniel J. Morrell sinking, and even that of the Cedarvilles a year before in 65, and that of the Carl Bradley in 58, is it fair to say that older vessels' hulls were not, uh, were not undergoing um, regular uh, rigorous inspections? No. They might have been lucky if um, there was maybe one or two inspections a year, Two might be okay, but I think it'd be fair to say that, you know, for every trip um, a vessel makes on the water, when it returns back to port, it might not be a bad idea to inspect that hole, because you might detect something small that's not right at first, but if you wait too long, it's going to become a bigger problem. So yes, all older vessels' holes were required to undergo more rigorous inspections. The Coast Guard Board of Inquiry also proposed that commercial freighter vessels get equipped with inflatable-style life rafts, which would provide better means of shelter for captain and crewmen against nature's forces, along with access to flare guns, radio, enhancing chances for survival versus what currently existed. Remember, folks, there were no radios for Dennis Hale and his uh, three crewmen on board that life raft, being John Cleary, Charles Fossbender, and um, and the other um, fellow. I, I I can't believe I'm I'm drawing a blank, and I do um, Art Stochek. Glad I remembered. I would have felt terrible if I couldn't have even remembered his name. So think about it. These four men didn't have a radio. They couldn't um, issue, they couldn't uh, call out where they were. Yes, they had some flare guns, but unfortunately the flare guns alone weren't enough to, um, for all of them to be saved with the exception of uh, Dennis Hale. The Coast Guard board did clear um the Morrell's captain, even though he didn't survive, but they cleared uh, Captain Arthur Crawley of any wrongdoing. And I'm sure some of you are probably thinking, well, why should this guy have been cleared of any wrongdoing, considering that he probably knew that there was a storm brewing, and yet he was willing to take a risk when he should have just kept the vessel at put in place where it was, given that he dropped anchor, he could have just kept it in place 
knowing that if if he stayed in place, that he could have saved not only himself but everyone else. But we all we have to keep in mind that um, that there was a uh, deadline, and that um, and that Captain Crawley had to go by what company officials were wanting him to do, and that was to pick up. Um, uh, to go all the way to Taconite Harbor, Minnesota, to uh, pick up um, to pick up uh, a load of coal. So yes, uh, the Coast Guard board did clear um, Arthur Crawley of any wrongdoing uh, for Morell sinking, given there was no way possible for Crawley himself to have known well ahead of time his vessel's weaknesses. Okay, she. The guy didn't know really just how bad the state of his hole was in. But, you know, here's something else that should be taken into consideration going forward. If you're new to a ship like he was when he took over in mid-August of 66, wouldn't you want to know more about the internal structure of your ship? I would. I might want to know, hey, when was this... Okay, I see here that it uh, passed inspection recently... But um, even though this may have been done a couple of months back, what, what do things look like between now and the rest of the shipping season? Should we have another inspection? You know, because I, I, I want to know how we're going to look like going forward. I mean, yes, the ship's 60 years old, but how much more time does the ship have left? But at the same time, Maybe it's fair to say that that just wasn't something on everyone's radar, including that of a captain. So, yes, uh, for Captain Crawley, he simply had no way of knowing his vessel's weaknesses regarding its hull. For Captain Crawley, he could have only relied upon the most recent inspection records just before and leading up to August of 66 when taking over at the helm. So there we have it right there. The only things he, the only things he could have relied on were the most recent inspection records that occurred uh say months before his arrival and right up to the time that he came. Coast Guard board members were deeply concerned about the overall lack in communication with regards to Bethlehem Steel waiting a day and a half to inform the Coast Guard regarding the SS Morell's well-being. And if I'm on the board of inquiry, yeah, this is something that needs to get resolved. In other words, why did it take you guys so long to tell us about the well-being of one of your ships? A one and a half day lull or absence of um, absence failure and notification diminished chances in finding other survivors. I really do have to wonder had. Um, had Bethlehem Steel had Bethlehem Steel taken a a much uh, faster approach and notified the Coast Guard, I do have to wonder if there if the chances of maybe say finding five survivors alive could have been a little bit greater. I don't know why I say five, but I'm just using a random number between one and ten. Sure, we would have loved to have found ten. But even if you had found five and given enough and given much more notice, at least we could have still walked away knowing that we came away, we came home with more than one survivor. The report found that emergency radios 
at the time were not mandatory on all Great Lakes freighters. Here we are, folks, in 1966-1967. Technology should be a little bit more sophisticated by now to where, hey, we need emergency radios on all Great Lakes freighters. I mean, this is like going 50-some years backwards in 1912 when, you know, when Titanic sank. Um, one of the um, findings that uh, that was put into play after Titanic sank is that all ships had to be on um, call 24-7. In other words, you couldn't just shut down for the night at your own uh, pleasure. You had to be on the air 24-7 um, in the event something happened so that other ships could um, send out uh, distress calls to advise other ships that if you were nearby in the vicinity of this ship that um, that is uh, in danger, please go to her assistance immediately. That it, it had to take uh, the loss of fifteen. It had to take losing fifteen hundred people's lives on that of a uh, Royal Mail steamer um, Titanic, RMS Titanic, to change the fact that uh, you had to have mandatory twenty four seven communication on the waters. So yes, the report found that emergency radios were not mandatory on all Great Lakes freighters. But following the Morel sinking, changes would occur. Going forward, the Coast Guard pressed for all freighters to have in place an emergency power source placed on the forward section. The Coast Guard also advised if the, if the company, being, say, Bethlehem Steel, had not heard from a vessel within an hour of arrival into port, the owners would immediately... The owners would immediately implement a search for the boat's whereabouts. Shipwrecks. I think it's fair to say that shipwrecks are often the result of more than one element. Isn't it fair to say that with the case with the SS Daniel J. Morrell that it was more than just um, poor quality steel? Yes. But when we say more than one element we should refer to both human and non-human. So yes, the steel being non-human, but the human aspect of it is um, not communicating properly with, you know, Bethlehem Steel not communicating properly to uh, the Coast Guard in enough time about their vessel, waiting a day and a half, um, not uh, and also uh, with communication including not having emergency radios on these um, freighters. I, I don't know how many people's lives might have been saved in terms of a uh, crewman's lives could have been saved on the Morel had there been um, emergency radios, but it could have modified um, chances where maybe a few more uh, lives might have been saved. It's hard to know, but what we do know is that sometimes, sadly, it does take incidents like these to have to make drastic changes to ensure that uh, the chances of, of another event like what happened in November of 66, that the chances of it happening would be much slimmer. What I do know is that we have now uh, finished uh, everything that there is to talk about in this uh, podcast segment episode. When I'm on the air again next, we're going to uh, get into the epilogue. Can you believe it, folks? We have uh, are getting to the um, near-ending point of another uh, book topic podcast series. Well, thank you for your time as always, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe 
and thank you for being such ardent listeners.